Welcome everybody to Elmtown. This is episode four uh, about JavaScript in Elmtown. And we have some good sponsors today that I want to introduce. Well, the good old sponsors, plus a couple new ones. First, we have Asterisk, which has been a sponsor already. They're a cool company. They can help you make your ops excellent. And HumbleSpark, which we have our very own Luke here from HumbleSpark. Say hello, Luke. Hey, everyone. There you go. <laughs> HumbleSpark is a front-end focused development consultancy, and they specialize in JavaScript-heavy websites, uh, like improving your web performance, doing some A-B testing, and and analytics. So all of those good things you need to make a real app, you want to definitely check in with them for. Now, new, we've got Day One, which is the company for which I work, and they are awesome for sponsoring. And Day One's a beautiful journaling app uh, for Mac and iOS right now, coming soon to other platforms. And so I use it for life archiving. I love it. I used it for a lot of years before I started working here, and, and uh, I'd like you to check it out too. And Daily Drip is also a new sponsor. They're a training service that makes keeping up to date on programming skills easier. Uh, as you know, it takes a lot of time to find good resources and to learn new languages. And uh, finding the training resources is, is a pain in itself. But Daily Drip has already spent that time for you. So you can sign up and uh, pick your topic. They teach Elixir, Elm, CSS, and HTML. And uh, every weekday after you've signed up, you'll get a short video or reading delivered to your inbox. And these bits that you get in your inbox are short enough that you'll be able to consume them in about five minutes. So that's just just a little bit a day can get you uh, a long way. And they've given us a special coupon code just for Elmtown listeners. So if you sign up, use the coupon code Elmtown, and you'll save $9 on your first month, which means that you can try out the Elm topic for free. You could do a whole month of it for free and see if you see if you like Elm. Or Elixir is a wonderful language, too. And if and when you do sign up, please don't forget to use that coupon code because it'll also show support for the podcast and uh, they'll want to keep sponsoring us, which we would love to. Learning should be a, a daily occurrence, and I, th I think Daily Drip's a great way to help with that. So here we are about to start talking. We've got Luke here. Luke, do you want to say your full name? I know we already know you and me, <laughs> but we should both introduce ourselves a little. Yeah, I'm Luke Westby. And where are you, Luke? Currently, I'm in Turlock, California. But is that where you permanently are? No, usually I'm in, in Chicago. Wow, why the travel? I'm at a family wedding this weekend. Wonderful. Yeah. And very cool that you're recording anyway with your mic from there. Oh, totally. Kudos. Thanks for doing that. Um, and Luke, you work for HumbleSpark, right? I do. I'm a partner at HumbleSpark. And you're also a serious Elm guy. Your name will be seen by anyone who starts using Elm because of your contributions. Is that right? I imagine so. Yeah, I try to so. contribute as much as possible. You don't need to confirm my statement of compliment because that was just true. But, but do you feel like you contribute? I think you do. Yeah, I think you do. We don't need to ask you because you're going to be humble considering yeah. your company name. Yeah. Spark. All right. I'm Murphy. I should also try to be humble. I'm just kidding. I'm humble. I, th I don't think you could say I'm humble and still be humble. Um, I don't work for Humble Spark, but I still uh, strive for humility. I'm Murphy Randall. I work at day one and I'm here in Utah. So today it's just the two of us. We don't have a third panel member. Um, let's do a little bit of catch-up, Luke, and sure. why don't you tell us what you've been doing at work and what you've been doing with Elm and kind of just what you've been thinking about recently. Sure. Um, so at work, we, we've just been building apps and fixing bugs and stuff for our clients. Uh, I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to talk about my client work, so I'll just talk about Elm stuff instead. Sounds good. Um, it seems appropriate that you could talk not necessarily about the client work, but maybe problems that you've been solving related to it. Things like yeah. that. Yeah. Genericized. Yeah. I'll, I'll try and think of some things there. 
no problem. But uh, in the open source world, I recently redid the renderer for Elm Native UI for 0.18, which is Whoa. almost done. That sounds significant. Sounds like a significant chunk of work. It actually wasn't so bad. I, I really just uh, I copied the style, the technique of Virtual DOM. Okay. So if you read the, the two code bases, you'll see tons of similarities. Oh, that's uh, awesome. So it's, so it would... it, it's really interesting, and maybe we can talk about it later, how it yeah. works. But... What, uh, that would be a good topic for the show because this is JS Interop show. Um, tell us a little bit. Do you think that it's going to be in like alpha stage, or should people start experimenting with it for real use? What do you think? I think people should definitely try it. But um, what stage it's in would probably be up to Aussie to determine. All right. But yeah. you can do more than just a counter in it at this point. Yes, I think you could. Yep. Cool. Cool. So if you are hot onto the React Native scene, go ahead and take a peek at that. That's awesome. Anything else, Luke? I'm trying to like focus the Elm things that I'm doing and make sure that they're, they're things that are going to be really useful for the community. Um, so one thing I'm really excited about is uh, I'm planning to do this. I don't know what to call this. It's a podcast type thing. It's like serial, but it's there's video. Okay. So it's it's not like a podcast, but it's it is like a podcast. But I don't know what it's I don't know what it's called. A it's a show. Podcast. Um, dog. Right. So I'm going to pair program with people, and we're just going to kind of pick a project that they're they're working on, and the episode will be all about each guest every week or couple of weeks, and we'll just we'll pair program on a thing that they want to do, and uh, they'll have a chance to kind of like talk about themselves and how they discovered Elm. So it'll just be about like building up community members and using the problems that we're they're working on to teach beginners and stuff like that. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Are you going to make it reality show like some of them get voted off the island, <laughs> things like that? Um, I'll keep that in the list of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Okay. Glad I could contribute. No, that really sounds great. I think that'll be a, an excellent contribution. Um, it's going to be. It's so, going to be called Elm Duet. Oh, that's a great name too. Thanks. Yeah, I love it. And oh, uh, later today I'm going to do an Elm Live session. We're going to start building a uh, an experimental Elm program, like you know, like a like virtual DOM dot program to run stuff in a web worker as much as possible and Whoa. just see if it works. Well, you guys are getting intense, but that'd be fantastic. <laughs> Introducing yeah, some so wonderful that's, parallelism. That's what All I'm right. working on. Well, How that's great. I'll do a little catch up on what I've been working on. Still working on the day one renderer, but I've moved into actually working on some web app stuff right now. And uh, I've been facing just some uh, thoughts about integrating the URL with, with the journal app that I'm doing right now and how I'm going to use that. And That's right. I'm using that. Yeah, I ask Luke, Luke for help all the time. <laughs> but uh, I use the Hop router from, here, I'll drop that in the show notes, Hop, Hop, Hop from Sporto, uh, which is a great way to interact with the URL. It works on top of the Elm navigation package. And so that's what I'm thick in the middle of right now. And I've been loading in data from the server, showing it in the UI, rendering it, trying to do some nice UI stuff like uh, rendering a small excerpt of the, of the post on the sidebar. And this is great because I'm starting to get into some of the considerations about like performance because some of the journal entries that I load in as I, as I zoom past them have a lot of big images in them. And on the mm -hmm. left-hand side, it's, it's really making... I'm sorry, left-hand side, that makes no sense to you. Point is, the little images that are that are sized down are really making the browser chug 
gotcha. even on a fast computer. So interesting. Yeah, I got to think about some optimization. Whether I'm going to be saving thumbnails off, or whether you know I'll be just limiting the image count to one or something like that. So that's fun. And then also, I'm, I've been trying to think about how to solve the UX problem of infinite scrolling because journal you could have you know hundreds or thousands of journal entries, and if you chunk them into chunks of a hundred. It's going to be a bummer when you scroll to the bottom of the hundred and you have to wait for a second for the next hundred to come in, especially oh, if gotcha. you scroll back. Interesting. Yeah, so I'm trying to figure out those things. Like, what should I do? Infinite scrolling? Should I do pagination? Uh, and I don't want to do like I load right when you get to the bottom. So I was thinking maybe I could keep track of like how many entries have been scrolled past in the last half second, and if it's above two or three, then go ahead and load before they've reached the bottom. You know? Oh yeah, some like cool that. heuristics. Yeah. So I have yet to do any of that, but that's what I've been thinking about. And also, uh, once you're scrolling back hundreds of items, then the browser starts to chug too. Well, oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe, things like that. And this is exactly why uh, I use Dropbox for my photos right now, and it kills me because mm-hmm. I've got tons of photos, and if I want to scroll back farther than a couple of days, the browser just basically dies because they they're not optimizing what DOM content is available on the page. Right. Uh, where Google Photos does do this, and it's fantastic. Yeah. So my thoughts are like... Do I, you know, what what should I do to drop DOM elements after I've scrolled past them already? How eagerly should I do that, considering that I'm going to have to make another request to load them again when I scroll back up? Mm-hmm. Or maybe I don't have to make another request, but you know, uh, render them to the DOM again. Yeah. So those are all my I thoughts. Need to like virtualize the the display. Yes. Yeah. And I've read about people doing that, and it would be cool to do to figure out how to do an Elm, but it's most likely going to be JS a JS interrupt problem. Gotcha. Those are my thoughts. Nice. Um, and I'll let you know how it goes or if it goes in the future, hopefully. Uh, if you remind me, you dear listener. Okay. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's jump on to our real topic of JavaScript interop, Luke. And I think we should go over in rough order ports and native modules and kind of then uh, an example of what, say I'm writing a thing and I need a library uh, what what's the, my heuristic, my decision process for choosing how I'm going to go about using it? Um, right on. And I think that should make up our the chunk of our discussion. Sounds great. So do you want to give us a little introduction to ports? Yes, definitely. So this will be like the, the one-sentence definition where you need to go actually look it up if you want legitimate documentation. Um, so ports are a way kind of in and out of your, your Elm programs. So you can create command ports where you're able to send things out of Elm into JavaScript land and subscribe to those ports in JavaScript and react to to things coming out of your Elm program. And then you can send stuff in and subscribe on the Elm side with a a sub. And uh, they are, yeah, they're really nice. They, um, They fit really nicely in like the overall Elm command subsystem without kind of feeling, you don't feel like you're, you're doing something weird when you interact with JavaScript using ports. Yeah, it just feels to- really, totally really natural. Weird. Yeah. And it's got some added nicety, like anything that you use that's not a custom algebraic data type, if it's just native data types to Elm, you can send them through a port without doing any uh, decoding, JSON decoding or anything like that. Yeah, that's super cool. I love that. It's awesome until you have a bunch of ADTs in your model and then you <laughs> want to serialize your model and you realize you have to build a serializer and a deserializer for your whole model. But yes. that is a topic for another day. 
it also it really seems is like, like an all or nothing th- switch isn't it yeah yeah you can't just leave parts of it well maybe you could if you're creative but i feel like that there may be more elegant solutions to this in the future too uh maybe not maybe Maybe we want to keep it simple and you just have to write an encoder or a decoder. But it sounds to me like Evan and others would be interested in supporting ADTs going through uh, JavaScript. You just have to figure out, they've got to take time to figure out an elegant representation for that. So I don't think we're stuck with just native types forever, but that's where we are right now. And it's fine. It's, it's not bad at all. In fact, ports are a wonderful thing. I think that they're fantastic because they turn JavaScript into a service instead of just a... Instead of like dropping down to another language in the middle of Elm, you should think of it as a service, almost as if you're making a request to an HTTP server. You're just making a request to your JavaScript. So you send out a command just like you would to get an HTTP request, and then you'll receive a message on the other side, just like you would also when, a, when an HTTP request comes back. That's a beautiful analogy. Thank you. Thank you. Once I realized that, it helped me to be like, oh, well, okay, so ports aren't like a weird, scary thing that I have to do differently from everything else. Just treat JavaScript as a service. Um, so that is what ports are, and and why we need them is... Okay, tell me, Luke, have you ever needed ports, and why have you needed them? Yes. Let's see. The most recent thing I used ports for was I had a, a Socket.io server, which is this... This Node.js thing where it's doing WebSockets and it's also doing things like uh, like individual connections between browsers so you can keep track of your, your clients. It does a lot of, of really nice stuff for you. And there's a pre-existing server. So there's an existing client and server library for this. So I, I couldn't, I didn't really feel like building an entire Socket.io client with the WebSockets package for Elm. Yeah. And so I just, I ported out sends over the, the socket IO connection and uh, I ported in responses or messages coming from the server. It's fantastic. Love it. It's a great example of wrapping a third party library. I did that also uh, for the talk that I gave at ElmConf, which was the nightingale.space talk. Oh, that was so cool. Oh, thank you. Uh, I was looking for some way to do web audio at that point and uh, in Elm, I was hoping that someone had already written a library and there wasn't one. So at first, I was like, well, I'll just give up. But then I realized that it was pretty simple to just send a piece of data through a port to JavaScript and then let the web audio library on the JavaScript side take over from there, the playing part. And then I wanted to be able to interact because I wanted to not just you know, treat JavaScript as like a send it off and never see it again solution. I wanted to be able mm-hmm. to know what was going on. So uh, that's where the subscription came in help helpful the port the subscription side of the port the incoming to elm part because mm-hmm. on a callback in the audio library i was using when a note was playing i was able to send a message to elm to say what was playing so really it made interop very easy and clear and nice and i kept my type safety on the elm side which was important oh yeah so those are great reasons to use ports other reasons are querying the dom yes uh, like there's not an easy way that i know of Earlier I was talking about the infinite scrolling list and like doing something when you get to the bottom of the list. There's not a good way that I know of in Elm to just do that, to say, hey, set up an event when the bottom of the list is reached. So that's where I would port out and say, hey, set up an event 
like I'd send out the name of the DOM element that I wanted to listen to on that port, and then yeah. it could go ahead and set up a listener, and then I'd set up a subscription that says uh, react to whenever this event is fired. Have you ever done DOM querying stuff through ports before? I did to deal with scrolling, but now okay. we have that um, we have scrolling support in Elmlang slash DOM, so I no longer need to do that with ports. So what kind of scrolling? You mean like telling the page to scroll? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you weren't querying the scroll position? No, I suppose I wasn't. I wonder, so, I haven't checked out that package. I wonder if I could do it with that too. I'm looking at it right now. And it, yeah, you can totally like ask where the scroll position is, X and Y, and then tell it where to go. Of a certain element or of the whole page? Of an element. So you pass out Ooh. an ID, which I think is just a, a string. That's awesome. Okay, yeah. I'll have to check that out. Maybe I don't need to use ports for that. Thanks, libraries. Um, <laughs> Fun thing you need to, to always make sure to do if you're querying the DOM with ports is like make sure you're taking all the necessary steps to ensure that the element you're interested in is, is there and ready. That's a great point. And so, what, what would you say the necessary steps are for that? Um, usually wrapping your the contents of your, your port subscription in a uh, request animation frame is sufficient to wait until virtual DOM has done all its rendering stuff. That's what I would also suggest. Someone was asking me the technical details of that the other day. I think I understand it, but I'm betting that you understand it a little better than I do, Luke. Do you want to tell us why wrapping it in request animation frame will solve the problem? I think the gist is just that virtual DOM batches updates to the actual DOM. So you could update your view like a whole bunch of times, but if it's all within one browser tick, it's only going to cause one actual change to the DOM, and that's because virtual DOM is keeping track of changes and then queuing up an actual render in a request animation frame. Which is awesome. Yeah, it's really nice for performance, and it's just that the result of that is you need to also request an animation frame to, to look at the DOM. So that means that on the Elm side, let's say you do some DOM manipulation, then you send out a message. That can all happen within the same tick. Is that yes. right? Yes. Uh, or is it? Or does the message go out on the next tick? That one I don't know for sure, and I don't want to say something that's wrong and mislead people. But if it were, I think the other way it makes sense. But once it goes out to JavaScript and you schedule that that request animation frame uh, function where you're going to query the DOM that gets scheduled after the paint has happened just because of what you said, that yeah. Elm matches those. So that's pretty fantastic. Um, I do think that there is an issue open right now where there are events being discussed that you could subscribe to for when an element is going to appear or disappear. I might be wrong about that, but I do remember reading that. So in the future, we could have the ability to do that within Elm without having to worry about using request animation frame. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to link to that in the show notes because it's not solid enough for me to know exactly what's going on. <laughs> so just forget we even mentioned it until later. Okay, so uh, if you think that covers ports pretty well, if you didn't want to mention something else, let's talk a little bit about native modules. Feel good about ports? Uh, one more thing about ports, if that's okay. okay. Yeah, certainly. Um, so, so you mentioned thinking about them as a service and the H, like as an analogy to HTTP requests. HTTP requests are also an example of a thing where you want to know what happens next for that particular request. Supports are not so good at this kind of I.O. where you're interested in the result of a particular 
operation, you end up having to do stuff like um, like attach a unique ID to a something you send over a, a command port, and yeah, then makes sense. watch the the IDs coming in on the subscription side. It's a great point, and I hadn't thought of that. Thank you for mentioning that. <laughs> You're welcome. So also the other place where ports can be frustrating to use are, let's say you want to call out to JavaScript just to use a library that is essentially a pure function. Oh, I have yeah. found that that would be an annoying way to use ports because ports require the Elm application architecture to be in place. They require you to have subscriptions and commands, the update function. So yeah. in my certain case, I was building this parser for Markdown. And here I'm going to smoothly transition into native modules. Oh, building so this good. parser for Markdown. And uh, I checked out the Elm Markdown library, and it just wraps a Markdown parsing. It, it, does, it uses a native module, which is Elm calling out to a piece of JavaScript that's written in a certain way, and that sets up an FFI, or like a foreign function interface, to JavaScript. And then its return values, as long as they're native, can be parsed back into Elm. Now, the danger of using a native module is that you can get runtime exceptions, because there's no guarantee by the compiler in any way that that JavaScript that you write is going to be correct. So this is why it's generally discouraged to use native modules or to, to write them or to look for them, because in general, we're going for type safety. We want, we want the compiler to do as much as we can. So we want to be careful with where we dive into using native modules. But in this case, it seemed appropriate to me, especially since the core library for Markdown is a native module. And I just needed a different Markdown library. I couldn't use the built-in one because we're using a different one at day one. So I just fetched that library down, and I wrapped it in a native module, which is essentially just an exported function from the file that's named a certain way mm -hmm. uh, with attributes. And then there are some tricks to making sure that your JavaScript attributes match up to the Elm type definition on the Elm side that you're going to use. But essentially, I just made an Elm function that took in a string and it returned a JSON.value. Because uh, it is a pure function, it takes in a string, parses it, and it returns a, a JSON value that can then be parsed by the JSON parser. So that was on the Elm side, and then that calls the, the native JavaScript function, which just runs it through the parser, and it returns a list of tokens. Because I didn't want a string out, I wanted a, a list of tokens. And so that, that all happened without having to use commands, without having to use subscriptions. It happened immediately after the function was called, because it is a pure function. So that was, I feel like, an appropriate place to reach for a native module. Totally. Uh, thinking about you know, making sure that you, you know that runtime exceptions can happen at that boundary or inside the script. And they did quite a bit trying to get it work. I got, I got mm -hmm. a lot of runtime exceptions because yeah. of the JavaScript code. So do, have you ever done really, that, Luke? I really like how you return a JSON value instead of... Um, returning something where you, you kind of know the, the type already. That's kind of a, a cool way to, to compromise on, okay, we're going to do a native module to get what we need, but we're going to leave figuring out what the return value looks like up to Elm and keep the type safety there. Yeah, actually, that's a great point, because then I get to preserve the error handling instead of having a runtime error on the Elm side. Because then I know when I parse it that it's going to be a result whatever, real result string list of tokens, mm -hmm. and that encapsulates the possibility of an error. I really like that's awesome. I'm going to start doing that. So have you done native stuff yourself? I have. I've done a couple things. So one of them is an effect manager for the battery status of a device. This is like a, a browser API that you can use on most platforms. Awesome. Can you tell us, too, what an effect manager is? Yes. Um, effect managers 
are what Elm uses to keep track of commands and subscriptions for a particular thing. So there's a whole bunch of them for DOM and, and window-related stuff. Like There's an effect manager for the keyboard and for the mouse. Mouse is a good one. Okay. Um, so there's this uh, little island of, of state that lives separately from your application, and it's keeping track of what mouse events that you're actually listening to. And so there's like you can have all these different modules interacting with the mouse, and then there's just this one place, this effect manager, keeping track of who's listening to what mouse events and what it wants to do, what messages it wants to send when they happen. Now, that's really interesting. So can anyone write an effect manager? Anyone can write an effect manager. There's not really any documentation, and you can't publish modules that have effect managers in them. And most of the time, you're going to want to have native code in your effect manager anyway. So the idea so they're not is that inextricably tied. They're not, no. Okay. So you can create an effect manager without native code, but they're really intended for interacting with browser APIs and stuff like that and doing okay. things like caching. So if you can't publish them to the package index, why would that be useful to somebody? Um, you can still write them yourself. You can still use them in your, in your apps. Great. In your proprietary projects. Yes. Makes sense. And I, I have yet to... I'm trying to ask kind of leading questions that it would be educational. I have yet to need a custom effects manager myself. Uh, that's because most of the APIs used, I've used are covered or accessible by ports. So, Luke, why were you doing this instead of you know using ports or something like that? Uh, just for fun. Oh, okay. <laughs> awesome. I like doing things that are not kind of in the prescribed path. I like seeing what it takes to get it working in more interesting ways. Very cool. And it was just like fun open source work. It wasn't for a client or anything like that. So it wasn't so a big deal to me if it had runtime errors for now. <laughs> good. How did you feel about it? felt pretty good. Um, the API is like pretty neat. The way that it's all based on tasks and it's it's all about like keeping this this uh, separate island of state. It's it's really interesting, fun thing to work through understanding. So it is there is a way then to maintain state outside of the core update loop. Yes, and that's an effect manager. It is very interesting. Do you think that has a well? Maybe maybe we shouldn't go there. I was going to ask if you knew if that had any analogs in, in a language like Haskell or something like that, because I don't know. But I, maybe we should save that for another show. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know um, enough about Haskell to say if it does. Maybe we should get a, a rabid Haskeller on here to tell maybe. us all those things in a future, like getting getting Haskell-y in Elmtown or something like that. <laughs> show. Yes, okay, so cool. do you have any bad examples of native modules? Bad examples of native modules. Um, one time... I was feeling lazy, and I was doing this thing where I was sending a whole bunch of stuff over a port, and it had a bunch of uh, of ADTs in it, like we were talking about earlier. And I didn't feel like writing encoders for everything in this little like fun experiment that I was doing. So I wrote a, a native function that like automatically converted Elm stuff into JavaScript stuff. Oh, cool. Um, and it was like a fun function to write, but probably not a good idea for real use. So it was just like a a function, you know, automatically encode and it was of type A to json.value. That's awesome. Yeah. You can get nasty to debug. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. 
So I actually did that too uh, for the sake of debugging, which I'm totally okay with. Uh, I wrote a native module that took in a JSON value and then did json.parse and then console.log so that I could take an Elm thing and print it out in the console and be able to look at it. And it gets a little messy because you see all of Elm's internals, but mm-hmm. it was helpful at the time. Oh, cool. So you can like use the little Chrome like open close thing yes. on the objects right on. Yeah, and that worked out well. Because I did have a lot of ADTs and I didn't really want to exactly what you were saying. I just wanted to debug. So I think that's a great purpose for, for debugging. Um, I do have a bad example, though. Kind of bad. And I think it would be interesting to talk about a better solution to it. Uh, a number of months ago, I was experimenting with writing a thing that would parse a big JSON representation of a form, like an input form, a big one. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to give a unique ID to each element on the form as I was parsing it. And I didn't want to keep track of the index or like the number of things that I was going over. And so I just wanted to generate a random string, mm-hmm. which is a side effect, right? Yeah. That's a thing that you should send off a command and get back a random ID from the outside world. But I was moving fast and I was like, ah, oh, I'm just going to do it. And so I wrote a native module that would just return a random string. And so essentially it was, the type was unit to string, which means that I completely broke out of uh, purity mm-hmm. and it was still type safe, but I broke out of the purity right. so that I could just call a function that would give me a random string. And it totally worked, <laughs> but I'm not sure that it's a great idea to sacrifice the purity of your program when the whole language is based on purity. But I want your opinion on that and like maybe how you would have solved it instead. Um, I suppose if I was being really rigorous, I would try and generate a, a random string with the, with the random package using commands. So in that case, let's say you're doing, you're doing your one parse operation, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not going to wait for the update function to run. Oh, I uh, see. Because, so, it, so it had to be synchronous. Yes. Oh, interesting. And the only approach I've thought of is like generate a list of 10,000 unique IDs and pass them into the parser huh. when it's doing the parsing, and then I can get a unique ID by just popping it off the top of the list. But then you just have to hope that 10,000 is enough, right? Right. I'm not super familiar with the random package. Are there facilities where you can give it like a, like a seed and get back a, a random value synchronously? No, it's mm-hmm. all async as far as I know. Uh, you, you do give it a seed, but every time you do it, you get back a, a command to run. Gotcha. Which will generate a message. Yeah, maybe there's like a way to hand roll enough random stuff that you could get random values synchronously given some seed, and then you could like get the current date for that seed, and then you'd only have to do it once. Interesting. It'd be an interesting problem to figure out. I went with the lazy route, and I just broke purity. I think another way to do it would just to be using the index of the thing that you're going over. So you just keep right. some state, you know, as you're doing the parsing, and you say, "Oh yeah, this is number one." Yeah, whatever. Seems like Which definitely is probably the best solution. Definitely one of those trade-offs between readability and, and purity. Yeah, another approach would be to have a unique ID generated on the JavaScript side, or that whatever's given me the data. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have the ability to do that. So sure. So that's an interesting problem that it sounds like we don't really have a no. a wonderfully exciting solution for. I wonder, did you need to know that the the IDs were strings in particular? Was that important to your Elm program to know that? No, I don't think it was. Because maybe you could represent your IDs as like some opaque type, and that way your program's not really allowed to like know things about about the IDs, even though they're not generated in a pure way. Interesting. So you're saying that you could generate it impurely and get back an opaque type. Yeah. That you just say, this is just an ID yeah. that can be compared 
and you shouldn't know anything else about it. Yeah. Whoa. That's how the ID, that's how like process IDs work for tasks. They're mind. Yeah. Blown. They're either, they're ints or strings or something, but that information is not available to your own programs. So it's just this like token thing that you have, you can't do anything with. So it still counts as pure if you wrap it up in something that looks the same. Is that right? No, it's still not pure, but at least uh, oh, okay. you won't trick your, your the rest of your code into thinking like this is a, a string that I can look at and, and write functions on. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So it would still be impure. Yeah. Anytime you're not delaying the execution to the outside of the of the program, you're you're being impure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It seems like you could actually wrap up your decoding function into a command and do the whole thing out on the outside oh. and say, like, yeah, you know, give me a function that gives it a random number and then wrap up the the basically like I don't know if I'm using the right terms here, like lift the decoding into the the random monad essentially, and like ship it out to the edge, and so you get the random number and then stick it in. Gotcha. Uh, and get back a message, but ma I'm just making stuff up now, and I probably am not saying things correctly at all. So, I'll wave my hands and move on. <laughs> all right. If, uh, so that was a bad example. Um, do you have any other good good or bad examples of native modules to talk about? Um, so my my favorite one is. Uh, the stuff that NoRide Inc. uses to, to do logging to Rollbar. And oh, tell me about it. So that's a native module that they use? Yeah, it's, um, it's just like a drop-in replacement for, for debug.crash, I think. So it just, uh, instead of doing whatever the, the built-in thing does, it sends off information to Rollbar about something that's that went awesome. wrong. Yeah. And so that's actually, uh, I use ports for that right now in my current app. Not for communicating with an outside service, but when there is uh, an error that I want to see in the console and I don't want to see in the browser, I send out a, a command that'll do a console log of that thing. Yeah, which is a great approach too. But uh, so the native modules you're sacrificing at that point some purity for the sake of pragmatism. Is that right? Yeah, it seems to be the case. Um, I hope that we don't get assaulted by some <laughs> purists. Ah, oh, that was a fun, and I didn't mean to make it. All right. We should put in the show notes this talk that Noah Hall did for Elm Remote Meetup about doing stuff like using a native module if, if you don't want to get stuck doing some hard thing that isn't really good with ports. So good. I'll find a link to that and share it. Great. Thank you, Luke. So let's, uh, I know we've, we've talked over examples a bunch, but I did want to say, like, pretend you and I are on a team trying to get a thing done and we run into a module. And let's talk through kind of like how we would use the whole thing. Okay. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to choose a scenario, one that I've already done so that we can do that together instead of a new thing that we don't know. I know people have talked about D3, and I've never used it, so I'm not going to pretend to do that. Instead, I want to talk about Tiny MDE, which is a, a small markdown editor. And it's got an interesting JavaScript API. But I was looking into this a few weeks ago when I was starting out on this uh, web client beta for day one, and I wanted a Markdown editor, mm -hmm. and I didn't want to write my own whole text editor uh, in Elm at the time because that would be, that's a that's a crazy lot of work. Mm -hmm. So totally found Tiny MDE, and I thought, oh shoot, I'm gonna have to do some weird shenanigans to get this mounted. Um, but first, I want to know what approach would you take, Luke? There, if 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 you're client came up and said, we need to have a Markdown editor in Elm. 
and uh you know, we, we need this right away. What would you do first thing? Uh, first thing I would ask is, do they need to support like Internet Explorer nine? Oh, good, good question. And let's say they say no, uh, we're we're supporting latest browsers plus one version back. Cool, that's great news. Because what I would do in that scenario is uh, I would embed the the instance of the editor in a W three C custom element. And I would just like make a like eight like virtual DOM dot node, and then like pass in the name of the custom element and some attributes. You are blowing my mind. That is so cool. Yeah, I'm gonna. I need to go check that out. This is like it's like a this is a joke, but it's like secret JavaScript interop that you can do that people don't talk about very much. <laughs> so I'm glad you're talking about it. That's another option then. Yeah. C- can you get feedback from that element, or is it just the void? You can uh, you can totally get feedback. Um, yeah, you can put in you can use HTML on listen to custom events, and then like all the data that comes from events on on custom elements is on this uh, event dot details property. So you just create a decoder for event dot details. That is so slick. Yeah, it works super well um, as long <laughs> as your browser is like capable of, of supporting custom elements and shadow DOM and all that stuff. All right, well, I'm gonna, I am definitely going to look into that more. Let's pretend now we back up in the scenario and the client says, yeah, we got to support IE9. Gotcha. Okay, so how many instances of this editor do we need? Like, do we need to be keeping track of, like, one editor per piece of some part of the model? Nope, we just have one editor. It's just, this, it's just they're making an app where people can write about their dog and... That's all. Nice. Love dogs. Love writing. They about get dogs. banned if they try to talk about cats. <laughs> um, so at, at that point, what would your next questions be, or your next approach, your next task? Uh, let's let's do a port then, because we don't have to keep track of like IDs. We don't have to be juggling. Okay, this like this command goes to this particular editor, and then. We're going to listen to the, the same thing on the subscription side and keep track of IDs. Let's just send out um, send out information from a port and, and get change information back in. And then we'll, we'll put an ID on a div somewhere in our virtual DOM. And then on request animation frame, we'll refresh the instance of the, the editor on that element. Excellent. Okay, so step one then is inside of your Elm HTML, you make a container for the element, right? Yeah. Something to put it in. And you give it a unique ID. Yeah. That's what you're saying. And then you send out, you use a port to say, hey, I need an editor created. Mm-hmm. And you send in the ID. You, maybe you have to, maybe you don't. Maybe you just say, do it. And then on the JavaScript side, you know what ID to look for. Yeah, I definitely hide the, the particular ID somehow from the, from the LMAP. Okay, cool. So you send out uh, this thing that says, go ahead and, and register the editor. And then on the JavaScript side, it says, all right, I'm going to wait for the next request animation frame. And then it uses the JavaScript library. So maybe you're running Webpack. Maybe you've imported the JavaScript library as a certain variable. And at that point, you can say, go ahead, library, and bootstrap yourself into this element because you already know it exists on the page. Yep. And then whatever the editor is, whatever yeah, the library is that you're using, it's probably going to have an event for updates yep. where it's going to send you back the stuff that's been written. Mm-hmm. Cool. So if you get back that update, you're saying that then you use app.ports.send, or in the port name, app.ports.like 
editor content change dot send send through the content and at that point on your elm side of your app you're going to get the source that you can stick into your model yep so at this point you wouldn't have the elm model controlling the content of that editor is that right um I, so you you could still have your elm model control the content to as much degree as possible by just um having also a a, a port uh, so in addition to the port where you're sending a command to create the editor, you can also have yeah. a port that sends commands to to change the editor's text. So you can still have that one-way flow. It's just going to be a little asynchronous, but it'll still work fine. That makes sense to me. So, I, And I guess it depends on the API of the editor, but you could end up in kind of like a weird feedback loop, if you're not careful, where you send an update to the editor, you update the editor, it fires an event that it's been updated, which then talks to Elm, which then updates the model, which then gets you in a in a forever loop. Right. It, yeah, you definitely want to so do maybe some maybe just be aware of that. Yeah. Definitely want to do some some duplicate checking before you send it back into your your own program. So, I think that actually covers the situation very well. And oh. I think that's a that's a good approach that uh, it's good to think about if you're having to solve these kind of things. Ooh, something uh, else you should do kind of in the middle there is okay. um so you're in your port handler, you've requested an animation frame and now you're going to look up your element by ID. Okay. So you've done that. You have your element, and you're getting ready to update your editor. I think most of these libraries are instance-based, so you would have a reference to some like object that represents your editor. Uh, what I would recommend to do is like attach that instance to the DOM element, and instead of creating okay. a new one every time, Whenever you, you look up the DOM element, see if that instance is already there, and then manipulate it that way. Interesting. That's great advice. So you can save some computational costs there. Yeah. Nice. And then if you have like a single-page app, you go to a different page, the element gets trashed, and so does the, the reference to the editor. Okay. That's great and good automatic cleanup. Yep. Awesome suggestion. Let's take like two minutes and go over the same kind of story with a native module, just so that everyone knows what what steps you'd take to use it and why. So maybe let's say the native module is going to be, uh, yeah, like console log, or like we want to send something to our analytics service, uh, and you know you're going to sacrifice purity for that for the sake of the company you know, doing the thing they need to do. So if you get this request that says, hey, we need to be able to send this thing synchronously to our Splunk service, how would you actually go about making that native module? I suppose we, we start by making our, our native Directory. So, under okay. so you put a you put an actual new folder in the root of your project? Yes, it has to be in one of the, the directories that you've listed under your source modules in your Elm package.json. It has to be okay. immediately in one of those. And it has to have a capital M in yep. at the beginning, right? Native. Capital N okay. native. And then what do you do inside the folder? And then um, in that folder we'll make a JavaScript file. What was the name of the service? Uh, let's just call it Murphy Logger. Cool. So we'll create murphylogger.js. Okay. That'll be probably like capital M, capital L. I'm famous. All right. <laughs> and then uh, in that in that JavaScript file, we we have to follow this this particular native format. So we're gonna which includes the name of the module, right? It does. It includes okay. whatever you've got as the repository information in your Elm package.json. That's going to be kind of like the the prefix to your to your uh, variable's name, to your module variable. Okay. 
And then do I return an object or a function or something from inside there? Uh, inside there, you're going to attach an object that has all of the, the things you want to expose as like members of this native module. Okay. And don't forget and those if you things. have functions with multiple arities to use F2, F3, whatever. Oh, that's a great point. So are those just available in the global scope? Yes. Using F2, F3? Yeah. Okay. I did not know that. What I've always done, uh, just to, and just to be clear for those who don't know what arities are, multiple arities, that's like a function that takes more than one argument is going to be curried. Elm is going to think of it as curried. So you can't just register a function in the JavaScript side that takes three arguments and call it that way. You're going to have to use F3, like you said, Luke, or what I've done is just straight up nest my functions. So yeah. each function takes one argument and returns another function that takes one argument. You can use combinations of, of those two methods to get better performance. Like the node function in virtual DOM is a, a function that returns a function with arity too, because usually the node function is being called with some string, and that's it. Yeah. It's being pre-applied with that string, and so that's kind of like a, a performance trick that you can do if you know, like, this is always going to be called with some arguments first and then some more arguments later, kind of split the difference. That's awesome. So then at that point, do you just, inside of your Elm file, can you just go ahead and use that native file or what? Uh, next, you'll need to go back into your package.json and fill in this, this property native modules, native-modules, all lowercase, and just set it Great. to true. Okay. And then you can import native.murphylogger. Awesome. And then... Do I do that everywhere, or is it kind of better practice to isolate that native use to one place? Definitely better you know? practice to, to make a, an Elm file, an Elm module, Murphy logger, import your native stuff there, and then give everything a type. Okay. Because things in native modules, have they're untyped. They're just type A. Okay. So it's good to wrap them up with a, a real type. So that way you can tell the compiler how to expect to work with your native module everywhere, and then it's just up to you to make sure that you're keeping truth in that contract on the JavaScript side. Yep. Cool. Thank you so much for that overview. I'm glad that now we know how to do both things. And it's time for our picks. Cool. Let's move on to, to pick time. I wish I had a pick time song. Pick time, pick time. <laughs> Luke gets to go first, picking. Cool. Um, I have to apologize in advance if I mispronounce anybody's name uh, who's created these wonderful things. Um, so the, my first pick is Elmplot by Teresa Sokol. It's this uh, just just beautiful plotting library for creating graphs and charts. And um, it's so nice. Oh my gosh. Like, that you know, like when you great. see a, a library and, and you're just like, wow, like, wow. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so good. I love it. I have to check it out more. I saw the link to it. I need it. I need to look deeper. Yeah. Um, so that's pick number one. Pick number two is yesterday I was in the car driving from Southern California to Northern California, and I was just having fun Twitter conversations. And I asked a question about types, and the result of that is Amar Shah was able to teach me a whole bunch of stuff, and I learned that the parser in EvanCZ slash URL parser is an arrow type. An arrow type. Yeah, so I'm going to link to... The tweet where he tells me that. Awesome. Um, that was a cool thing that I learned yesterday. So 
I guess the pick there is arrow types. Okay, I'm going to read up. I have to read up on that to know more. But also this conversation was fun. So the pick will be the type and the conversation. Um, All right. Third pick is uh, Hansel Minutes podcast, episode 551, wherein Scott is talking to my friend Ihanye about, like, should developers design? And it's uh, a really good episode, really fun conversation. Uh, I learned a bunch of stuff. And do you have a one-word summary of their decision? I don't. It was just a... I don't have a summary. <laughs> it was, you should just go listen they, to it. It was. They didn't decide yes or no. Well, uh, the the the, uh, the decision was yes. Developers should oh, should design. Good. Okay. Good. But there's a lot of interesting things to say about that, which which they said. Fantastic. I like Hanselman. It's a good podcast. Yeah, it's really good. And then my fourth pick is the Cubs winning the World Series. Woo Cubs! Yeah. I don't actually follow baseball, but I have heard about it, and I am glad that they were able to pull out a success after lots of years of not doing that. Yeah, yeah, it was great. 108 years. It's a long time. It is. It's a long time. I actually live um, not too many blocks from, from Wrigley Field, but I was in an airplane during the win, so I'm kind of glad that I wasn't in the neighborhood because... Didn't get to hear it exploding. Yeah, there was a lot of a lot of people, and a lot of... Like, people knocked down a an electrical pole and we're carrying it down the street at one point it was crazy what was it just like mass pandemonium and oh my gosh so many people it was it was awesome wow but very like for the number of people who were out like very minimal injuries and arrests and stuff (laughs) good i'm glad yeah and probably hopefully nobody died no no oh good that's somebody did fall off a light pole though well I, I would suggest not being on a light pole in the first place. Yeah, that would be Probably. Ideal. Maybe that's a pick. Don't be on a light pole. <laughs> yeah. So everybody in Chicago, it's like a civic holiday today in Chicago. And that's yeah, great. so very exciting. Cool. Thanks for sharing that. And those are all four of your picks or did you have another? Those are all my picks. All right. Well, here come the Murphy picks. Uh, I only have three today. And the very first one is going to be a library for Elm from Chris A. Jenkins. And it's called Remote Data. And this is a fantastic library. And what it does is it encapsulates the concept of data that you need to request in your model. So it's an algebraic data type with with a bunch of functions that are meant to operate over it. And the data type expresses whether your data has been fetched or not, whether it's in the process of fetching, whether you haven't even tried to fetch it, and whether there was an error or whether you successfully had it. And it makes it really easy to work with those things Uh, And so I've started to use it all over the place. And it's really convenient to have in the model because, I mean, on the places where I need to fetch information from the server, I just type the data as web data n or whatever it is, web data thing. And then I I have all of these guarantees in place from the compiler that I I have to know how to work with that uh, from a fetching point of view and how to respond to those fetches. And there's some pretty cool stuff you can do with that too. Like uh, I ended up making a generic view function that just takes web data of any type. And if it's errored, it shows an error instead of the thing. And if it's requesting, then it shows some loading thing. And then if there is the thing there, it just renders that. So all I had to do was, at the top level, throw that function in and send in my web data. And all of a sudden, I have error handling all over the app visually, which is really cool. So it's pick number one. Thanks, Thank you, Chris, for doing that. Pick number two is the Lord of the Rings series. Nice. I 
love those books. And if you haven't read them, now would be a fantastic time. A number of years ago, my wife and I started watching the extended edition of the movies at Christmas time. It's like, it's become kind of a Christmas tradition. And then I started listening to the books on audio tape. And wow, books and movies are certainly different experiences, but I, I love them both for different reasons. But wow, the books are just fantastic. So I listened to all of them, and now I'm on my second time through listening to them again. And it's a lot of hours of listening, but I think it's hours well spent. Uh, thanks, thanks, Mr. Tolkien, for doing that. Uh, last pick is I ended up coming across a 4K monitor this week, and it is beautiful. But the funny thing is I'm running it at 1080p resolution. So the 4K monitor is supposed to let you work at like 2560 by 1440 mm -hmm. and still have really sharp text, which is fine, but I guess my eyes like big things because I switched the resolution to 1080p, which is just, you know, like old standard HD video, mm -hmm. and I love it. I love having nice. I love having this stuff big on screen. It's so easy to read. So there's my unorthodox pick is get a fork an expensive 4k monitor and then run it at a low resolution like it's a few years ago but it's going to be super sharp and you're gonna gonna love it what is the the brand of the monitor i'm also uh, in the market the, for a monitor the one that i ended up coming across was a dell cool and i'm borrowing it from a friend and it's like it was first issue from them or something oh, wow. so it was it was pretty steep but i have been looking at them and there's i believe a dell if if not a dell there's an asus you can get it's a pretty reliable brand for like three hundred and fifty bucks. Oh, I think on Amazon right now. Yeah, it fluctuates between three fifty and four hundred if you don't mind buying used. Uh, so that's pretty good, and I do recommend it because it's it's nice on the eyes and you use your eyes all day as a programmer. You do. All right, that's picks. Picks are up, and I think the show's up too. So why don't you wave goodbye, Luke, with your voice? All right, I'll see y'all later. And I'll see you later too. Bye.